Merry Christmas and welcome to the Faith Church Podcast Channel. We exist to reach people and connect them to God and others. If you'd like more information about Faith Church or would like to schedule a visit sometime, visit our website at www.igotofaith.com. This podcast is made possible due to the generosity of our Faith Church family. If you would like to contribute to our ministry, you can do so by visiting our website at www.igotofaith.com or you can text the amount of your contribution to 84321. Both of these options will send you to a safe and secure server. Your giving is much appreciated. Now get ready as our lead pastor, Steve Husky, continues with part three of our series, Original Christmas. Good morning, Faith Church. What's going on, everybody? My faith family, man, it's great to see you guys today. Thanks so much for being here. My name is Steve Husky, and I am the lead pastor, and it's our privilege to have you. If this is your first time or your thousandth time, we're glad that you're here. I want to welcome those who are watching online. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, listen, guys, we are continuing our series today entitled Original Christmas. And where we've been with this series is just kind of answering the question and examining the topic of what it meant that 2,000 years ago a baby was born and how it really pertains to our life today. Again, I know if you've been in church for a little while or you're a church person or you have some church background, I know you think you have the answer and probably you do. But again, I think for us to just step back and say a baby being born in a manger 2,000 years ago, I mean, what does that have to do with me going to work tomorrow? What does that have to do with me raising my kids? What does that have to do with me in retirement? Again, it's this great kind of religious principle, but sometimes it's outside of our daily lives. And so what we've been doing is just kind of examining really what it means that a baby was born. What does it mean to us that he came and how it should impact our life? And so we started week one, if you were here, we started with this idea of God's plan. Everybody say God's plan. That God always had a plan to rescue humanity. That, again, I know sometimes we look at the worst of the worst and we feel like we're not as bad as some people because there are are people worse than us. And we look at the six o'clock news or we Google articles or whatever comes across on our feed, whatever, and we see people and we think, hey, we're not that bad. But the reality is... When you look in the man in the mirror, there's something broken on the inside of all of us, that all of us need help, all of us need a savior, all of us need forgiveness. And so it's always been God's plan from a perfect creation to the fall of man to the betrayal of God. God always had a plan. Immediately he responded to the fall of Adam and Eve with a rescue plan, a promised Messiah to come. And so ultimately Christmas is about celebrating a savior who came to rescue That even though we live our lives and we're busy, that there's always room for Christ because we're always in need of forgiveness. And so as God begins to take over our life, it's really about following and surrendering to the Savior. And so last week we talked about God's timing. Everybody say God's timing. That what we found is the Apostle Paul said this in Galatians 4.4, that in the fullness of time that God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And so what we found is this, is that, that in the beginning God initiated and declared a plan to send a savior but people were waiting with bated breath for thousands of years generation to generation century to century would pass and people would wonder is now the time is this the time the savior will be born is now the time the messiah will come and people would pass on without realizing the promise of god coming to pass but what we found out last week was that god in this perfect culmination moment in the significant of all of these things that god orchestrated through time in the most 
uh, pivotal moment that Jesus came forth, that God sent his son at the right time. It couldn't have been earlier and didn't need to be any later. At the perfect time, God sent the Savior, Jesus. And what we found from it is this, is that many of us are in the waiting game of life, that we're waiting for God to fulfill his promise on our life. We're waiting for God to work through our life, uh, through a situation, for God to bring us through a hard time, for God to bring us into what we've been praying for, studying for, preparing for. And sometimes waiting's difficult, but what we found in the perfect time of God to bring forth his son, our Savior, that God is still a God of perfect timing. And if you'll wait on him and not get ahead of him, you'll never regret it because God will always be on time in your life. Today, I want to talk about God's play. Everybody say God's play. Some of you have had maybe the opportunity to watch a play or, um, in fact, we have a, great, uh, we have a great, um, great theater here in town. I would encourage you, if you ever have the opportunity, to check one out downtown. We have some people in our church who are a part of that, uh, who are a part of the thespian crowd, and I myself am a thespian. I mean, it was only for a brief moment in the sixth grade, but... But it happened. Um, I failed to get recognized with any kind of Globe or Emmy or Oscar or whatever. But um, I can't help it. They failed to recognize talent. But sixth grade, I won the lead part in the sixth grade play of Mr. Grumpy's Toy Shop. I was the Mr. Grumpy. In fact, my first line in that play was, stop, stop, I say. What's going on here? It's captivating, wasn't it? And uh, I, I killed it. It, it was great. I, but it, truly, it was, it was three, the play was three acts. Um, I had somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 lines, which are in sixth grade. It was a lot. And I'm telling you, I killed like 97% of it. The first, I mean, I think it was a 60-minute play. The first like 57 minutes was incredible. Unfortunately, I started well. I just didn't finish well. I didn't have make time, find time to finish memorizing like the last three pages. So I kind of fumbled through, and I had a book kind of hidden in the back. And so it started great, but at some point we crashed and burned, which is maybe why I didn't get any kind of awards. But here's what I want you to know is even though that I had the main part, even though I was the key character in the play, the play could not have happened without supporting cast. In fact, the tradition at that time was that everybody who was in the sixth grade, which in my, uh, my elementary school, Barber Elementary, 665 Gary Road, Akron, Ohio, um, there were three sixth grade classes, about 25 students each. So the entire sixth grade, all 75 students had a part to play in the play. While only I had the lead role, there was supporting cast. There were people who built sets. There were people who painted. There were singers. There were people who played instruments. There were people that handed out bills as people were coming in, on and on and on. The point is this, that even though I had the lead role, the play couldn't have gone out without everybody participating in their side roles. And what I want to talk about today is God's play. Because as we celebrate the birth of the Savior, there's no doubt about who the key character is. There's no doubt about it who has the climactic role, and that's Jesus. But what I want you to know today as we talk about God's play is that every single one of us have a role to play in God's play. Every one of us have a function. Every one of us have something that God's called us to do in the story of the Christ child. In fact, for a few minutes, I want to look at some of the characters who are talked about in Scripture. See, so as you read the story, maybe, um, again, I didn't grow up in church, but I got saved at 17, so I've been in the game for a little bit. So I've heard the story. In fact, it's a tradition of ours. Every Christmas, the first thing we do when we get up is we read the Christmas story together. 
Uh, So I'm very familiar with it, but it's easy again to only look at the key character of Christ and miss the surrounding supporting roles. Again, I know if I ask you quickly, we could marry, uh, mention Mary and Joseph, but there's more in each and every one of these play a part in the birth of the Messiah. In fact, I want to just read a couple of them. Listen to it. Some of you guys will recognize these characters, but Luke chapter 2 talks about the shepherds. In verse 8 through 11, it says this, That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly the angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. I bet they were. If you see an angel and don't get terrified, you don't realize it's an angel. It says this, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. Come on, read this. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. Every voice, read this. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone, come on, say it, told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. See, what I want you to know is, again, that Jesus is the key character in God's play. He's the one who carries the climactic role. But even these people who are just known as the shepherds play a key part. See, because as incredible as the story of the Savior being born is, it has no significance in our life if we're not aware of it. It doesn't matter to us if we don't know it happened. We can't be forgiven of our sin if we don't know there's a Savior. And God sets up in that moment the very first evangelist of the message of the Christmas story. And what's so incredible about it is he takes very ordinary people, shepherds. A shepherd in that generation, in that time, they played uh, a key role in, um, in the society, in the culture, of raising sheep, sacrificing sheep, shearing sheep. But a shepherd at that time was the most common occupation of the day. It would be compared to a retail sales clerk in our time. A retail sales clerk is, uh, is the number one occupation in our nation. There are almost 5 million retail salespeople, which is greater than the population of the state of Kentucky. And here's my point is, what's so great about a shepherd? Nothing. They had no education, they had no political influence, no religious influence, no academic influence, no financial influence. They were everything, by all means, ordinary. In fact, they're so ordinary in this story, they're not even mentioned by name. But what I want you to understand is, is that God picked people that had no money, no academic influence. He picked people who didn't have an education. People didn't know their name. But God picked ordinary people to play a significant role in his story, and he's still doing it today. See, the Bible says that God takes the, 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 the weak things to confound the wise. God takes the foolish things to confound the wise. And, and so that means God takes everyday people, that when God does something in your life, people will look at you and say, how did they do that? They didn't go to school for it. I know, where, I know how they came up. I know how they used to be. I know who they are. And people will, God, people will look at you and be so shocked at who you are, what you're doing for God, how you're living in this life, that only God can get the credit because God God's using the everyday, average, ordinary people to do extraordinary things. That's you, and that's the shepherds. So again, we know the shepherds. Let me just give you a couple more characters. The Bible talks about this guy by the name of Simeon. Luke chapter 2, verse 25 to 28. You possibly have read this story, but glazed over his part to play. It says this, at that time there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly 
waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. And it says the Holy Spirit was upon him and it revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So this guy is a little bit different than the shepherds. This guy's kind of like a religious fanatic. Y'all know the religious fanatic type? Like, this, there's those. Like, we know the people. Here are the people. Religious fanatic people are people that can't have a normal conversation because no matter what you talk about, they want to well, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I went to see Star Wars. Praise God. Yeah, man, the Jedi, they really kick butt. Well, praise God. He always gets the victory in Jesus' name. Well, I mean, okay. I mean, you're you going to eat that popcorn? Well, we need to pray. And then, Father, we thank you for this popcorn. You know the people. This is that guy. This is, this is him. But it's what, what you need to see in this is that there are times, and maybe you're one of those people, and I'm not picking on you. I really want to celebrate you because some people will tell you that your passion is misplaced and that you're overboard, that you're too much, you're radical. But what I want you to see is this guy who was radical, God found someone that he could use. In fact, you go on, watch this. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says about this guy, Simeon. So it says, verse 27, that day the Spirit led him to the temple. When you're radical enough to spend time with God, that means God has your attention. And if God has your attention, he can speak to you, he can call you, he can position you, he can place you. And it's people like you that really make a difference in God's kingdom coming. It's not the people who are unaware. It's not the people who are aloof, who are playing the religious game. It's the people who want what God wants. So the Bible says that this guy, he's been waiting. Generations have passed. Thousands of years gone by of waiting for the Messiah. And God whispers to this one man, you're not going to die until you see him. I think I'd be talking about Jesus all the time too if I got that kind of insight. I'd be selling some books or something. But notice the Bible says again, that day the spear led him to the temple. What would happen in your life if you were passionate enough about God and leaning enough into him that you would hear his whispers. See, this guy was that guy. And so it says, so when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, watch this, as the law required, Simeon was there, right place at the right time. He took the child in his arms and praised God. See, here's, here's what I want you to know is that Jesus could not have been the Messiah unless he fulfilled the religious law of the day. The first religious obligation on Jesus that was beyond his control was that at seven days old, his parents had to take him to the temple to be dedicated to the Lord. Well, here comes Mary and Joseph carrying the newborn baby Jesus on day seven. When they get there, who happens to be there but Simeon? It's not a coincidence. What I'm telling you is that this old man, this old fanatic, just happened to be the guy that God used. He wasn't the key role, but he had a role. He wasn't the climactic character, but he had a part to play in God's play. Let me give you another one. Luke chapter 2 tells us about another person. Her name is Anna. The Bible says this, verse 36, Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanel, who from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years, and she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. And she came along, watch this timing now, she came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph and began praising, come on, y'all read this, and she talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. So I want you to see this other character that comes on the scene. 
The stage opens, in enters this woman. The Bible says this about her. She's old. And it's easy to look at her and think, wow, what a, like I wish I could be like her. Because how many of us in this room, sometimes we wake up and we have these intentions. You know, we say, God, tomorrow, man, I'm going to start my devotions. Like tomorrow's the day. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to spend time with God. I'm going to start reading my Bible. I'm going to start. And we wake up and we wake up late. We hit our snooze button nine times and we rush out of bed. We start it and we say, maybe at lunchtime I'll sneak time. And it doesn't happen. And we try to whisper a prayer before we go to sleep. This isn't this girl. In fact, the Bible says that she's living in church. She's there day and night her whole life. And if you're not careful, you'll read it and think she's a spiritual giant. And what you miss in the story is really how broken of a woman she is. She's not in the temple because she loves God so much. She's in the temple day and night because she has nowhere else to go. See, the Bible says that she got married and her husband died after how many years? Seven years. History will tell us that she was probably in the neighborhood of 14 years old when she got married. That was common in culture, which means her husband passed away when she was 21. If you're a widow in that time, here's, here's the line of responsibility. The people who would take care of you, number one, is your husband's brothers. One of them would take responsibility. If, you, if your husband didn't have any brothers, then your son would take primary responsibility of the mother. If you had no son, then your daughter's husband would take responsibility of this woman. If you had no husband, no brothers, no son, no daughter who was married, then possibly some extended family would take care of you. The fact that she's living in the temple meant that she had no one. She had no husband. She had no kids. She had no son. She had no daughter. She had no family. She had no money. See, what I'm telling you is this, is when you look at the woman who's used by God, again, to be an advantage, to be someone to tell the story that the baby's born, that this long-awaited Messiah, the Savior's finally come. Like, she's going and she's telling everybody. And it's easy to look at it and say, like, wow, look at her. But I'm telling you, she was broken. She should have, by all intents and purposes, been disqualified. And some of you in this room, you're like, I'll be used by God when, when I fix, man, we're in debt, and I, I don't know if I can do anything now. My life's in shambles. Like, my marriage is falling apart. I don't know how God can use me. Like, my kids are off the reservation. They don't never listen to me. Who am I to be used by God? Who am, who am I to show up and, and let God use me? Who am I to serve as a small group leader? Who am I to step into ministry? You're the same person that Anna was. See, it's not who you are that makes you valuable and usable. It's who God is. God can take broken people and make other people whole through your life. That's who Anna was. And so you have... You have uh, the shepherds, ordinary people who are used as the first evangelists. You have Simeon, a radical, that because he's radical, God puts him at the right place at the right time. You have Anna, a broken woman who has no financial equity in this world, for all intents and purposes, would have never even showed up in a census in that day. And then you have these other people known as the wise men. The wise men, the Bible tells us this, Matthew chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. And they entered a house, and they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Everybody read this with me. And they opened their treasure chest and gave him, Jesus, gifts of gold, Frankenstein, and myrrh. You know, that's how you read it the first time you see it. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Are you all with me today? Everybody shout God's play. See, here are these guys. They show up, and they're people of affluence and influence. They have wealth. They have means. And they find Jesus, and what you need to know is that they were not there the morning that Jesus was born. I know contrary to the nativity sets that sit in your home, 
I don't know about anybody else, but ours changes from year to year. I know who Jesus is. It's clear. He's the porcelain baby. I know the cows and the sheep. Very clear. Mary, she always is Mary. But I'm just going to tell you, we rotate out the wise men and Joseph. I'm not sure who's who. It seems like, you know, Mary's got some stuff going on at our house from year to year. You're not sure who she's with. But here's the thing is, these three guys, they're important. And we say three, we really don't know if there was ten, five, two. We say three because there were three gifts. But these three guys, they track him down. They know. And they show up because of who he is. They bring him gifts to celebrate him, and they bring him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And each of these gifts are significant. Each of these gifts means something. Gold. Gold is the gift only given to a king. And even though he was a baby, make no mistake about it, he was the king of all kings. And he is still the king. He's the soon coming king, and he'll be the king forever. Frankincense. I know that's something we don't talk a lot about, but frankincense was a very key element in the mixture of the anointing oil that was used by the priests in the Old Testament. The, these wise men bringing him the gift of frankincense was this prophetic or foretelling way of saying that Jesus would be a priest. Not a priest with a collar with a little white spot, but he would be our high priest. That he would be, the Bible tells us, that he sits at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for us. Do you know what Jesus is always saying? That's my daughter. That's my kid. That's my son. He's righteous. He's accepted me. He's put his trust in me. That's mine. He belongs to me. Jesus is always declaring grace and favor over our life to the Father. That's his role. He is a great high priest. And then the Bible tells us myrrh. Myrrh was a key ingredient that was used in the burial of people, which means the most important function that Jesus played on the planet was to be the sacrifice for the sins of all humanity, which means it was always foretold, always expected. Jesus was well aware that while he was here on planet Earth, he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. He always knew he would die. And so the gift of this expensive perfume, myrrh, was symbolic in foretelling of his death. But what I don't want you to miss is this. When you read the story of these wise men showing up, these wise men, they show up and they give these gifts. What you need to understand is before the wise men got to Jesus, they went to the king of the region. His name was King Herod. King Herod was one of the most jealous kings to ever live. He killed some of his own children because he thought they might be a threat to his throne. He killed brothers because he was afraid they might try to overtake his throne. He was absolutely rabid jealous, and so he killed anybody who threatened his throne. When the wise men showed up and told King Herod that a new king had been born, he immediately put to plot a, uh, an effort to kill Jesus. And so he killed every child two years and younger in that region. I'm telling you, that's crazy. But what he was doing was trying to wipe out the threat to his throne. So he's trying to kill Jesus. And so watch this. God sends the angel, the same angel that showed up to Mary and said, Mary, you're pregnant. Don't worry. That baby's from God. The same angel that showed up to Joseph in a dream and said, hey, Mary, the girl you're engaged to, she's not sleeping around. She's pregnant. And it's by the Holy Spirit. That same angel shows up to them a second time and tells them to run to get out of the area because King Herod's going to try to kill the new baby Jesus. So they load him up and the angel sends him and tells him to go to Egypt. And so they, tra they take what some people would say would be a year trek, a year journey. Can you imagine? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we here for a year? Shut up. 
a year journey to Egypt. They stay there. Some people estimate from a year to two, and then they make a year journey back. Here's the question. Where did an unemployed new father and mother get money to make a year journey and trek to Egypt, live unemployed for two years, and a year journey trek back to Palestine? Well, I just read it to you. God just happened to send three wealthy men to provide everything they would need. In the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, there was everything they need that they could hawk to meet all their living expenses, all their traveling expenses, all their eating expenses, and money to spare. I'm telling you that God used ordinary, everyday, affluent, and influent people to make the sacrifice so they would supply the need of Mary and Joseph and Jesus to travel for up to four years. See, here's what I want you to see in all this, is you can have money or no money, education or no education. You can be as old as Anna and Simeon, or you can be as young as the shepherds. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever your background is, God still uses people just like you to play a part in his play. So, but here's the crazy thing is, right? The story didn't end with the baby in the manger. The story was still being written. See, it wasn't just about a baby coming and being born. The story was still being written. In fact, some of us call it the greatest story ever told. Why is it called the greatest story ever told? It's called the greatest story ever told because it ultimately is initiated and authored by our great God who sent his great son, Jesus, who became the greatest prophet and the greatest teacher to ever live, who, who, who died the greatest death. And the reason it was the greatest death is because it made a way for the greatest of sinners and the greatest of sins to be forgiven. And then he pulled off the greatest comeback of all. After three days in the grave, he conquered our greatest enemies of death, hell, and the grave. That's why it's the greatest story ever told, because Jesus did it all. But the story is still being written. See, it didn't end with him in a tomb. It didn't end with him rising from the dead. In fact, the Bible tells us and history tells us that Jesus showed himself alive for 40 days. He ascended back to heaven, and 10 days later, there were 120 people waiting in what was called an upper room. Acts chapter 1 is a historical book. It's a historical timeline of the church that Jesus birthed and planted. And there on that day, Peter during the Feast of Pentecost, when Jerusalem was crowded with over a million people who came to worship God during this feast, this sacred feast, the Bible tells us this same Peter who just earlier was, a, he's so afraid. He was so afraid to be connected with Jesus because he was afraid for his own life. He was so ashamed that people might recognize him or connect him to Christ because the same way Jesus was beaten and mocked and hung on a cross, he was afraid that would happen to him. So anybody who said, hey, are you one of his disciples? Like in fear, no. In fact, the Bible says that he was so adamant that he cussed out a little girl in trying to deny his connection to Christ. That same Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached a message about the resurrected Savior. And the Bible tells us that 2,000 people got saved. Peter and John continued to carry the gospel because the story was still being written. The Bible tells us that right after that, that another 3,000 people got saved. Not a bad start for a new fledgling church of 5,000 converts. In fact, it goes on and it goes on that they went from region to region, area to area, preaching the gospel. The apostle Peter was a key apostle to the Jews, and he was there eventually getting arrested for his faith. The Bible tells us and history tells us that King Agrippa, he ultimately arrested and beheaded the apostle James, the brother to Jesus, the key apostle to the Jews as well. He lost his life for the faith but it did not stop the story from being written. 
because it continued to go. In fact, in 34 AD, this guy by the name of Saul, who hated Christians, who, who thought the Christian faith was a bastard faith from the Jewish faith, and he did everything he could to squash it, quelch it, and put it out. He did everything he could to arrest, to stop, to silence every person who claimed the name of Christ. And so on a journey to arrest Christians, he gets arrested himself. Jesus knocks him on his rear end, and he has a vision of the resurrected Christ, and he gets transformed, and he gets, becomes this person. He's no longer Saul. He becomes the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest evangelists ever in history. And he plants churches, and he preaches the gospel, and, the, and history tells us, and the Bible tells us about three missionary journeys. He goes from city to city to city to city, planting churches, preaching the gospel, seeing converts and establishing leaders. And at the end of his third missionary journey, he himself is arrested. And in, in about 67 AD, he is beheaded by Nero, the emperor. But the story is still being written. It didn't end with the book of Acts. In fact, think about this. You are here today because someone told somebody who 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 told you. The reason we know the name of Christ is because on that morning, some evangelist shepherds went out. Some evangelist named Anna went out. Some evangelist named Simeon went out. And they began to tell people. And the message is being, is being told and has been told and has been told by ordinary, average people playing their part in God's play. You're not the key character character and I'm not the key character. Jesus is, but we still have a key role to play in the story that God is telling to people all over planet earth. You have a key role to play. The story's still being written. And so the message journeyed from person to person, from region to region, from nation to nation, from continent to continent until here we are 2,000 years later. Think about it. 2,000 years later. See, so while the birth of Jesus is amazing, that was only the beginning of the story. The story kept being written and kept being written and kept being written, and here we are 2,000 years later. What I came to tell you today is that the story is still being written. The original message that the angel told Joseph and Mary, I'm sorry, the shepherds, about Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus is this. He said, glory to God. Every voice read this. Glory to God in highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. See, here was the mission, and it's still the mission. As long as there's glory to be given to God, and as long as there's people who need peace between God and themselves, as long as there are sinners who need a Savior, as long as there's broken relationships that need mended between them and God, as long as God can get glory, the story is still being written, which means today, 2,000 years later, rich people and poor people, and educated people, and uneducated people, and young people, and old people, and people of every race, and every creed, and every color still have a part to play in God's play. Does anybody here want a part to play? Like, I, like that's why we're here. See, people ask the question, you know, it's, it's, it's there. People climb and ascend mountaintops to ask, you know, old religious people, what is the meaning of life? You want to know what the meaning of life is? The meaning of life is for you to partner in God's play in reaching people. We find significance when we share in the story of the Savior. What life is about when we merge our lives with the Messiah. Do you know the Bible calls us co-laborers? Everybody say co-laborers. 
God's doing the work to reach and redeem man, but we're co-laborers. We get to work alongside of him. When we serve in the church, when we give our resources, when we pray for people, when we serve as small group leaders, when we reach out in our community, we serve along nonprofits, when we love our neighbor the same way we want to be loved. Every time we do something, we are co-laboring with Christ to reach his world. We are playing a part. You're playing a part in God's play in the story that's still being written. Here's what Romans says. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 says this, but how can they call on him? Come on, y'all say this. How can they call on him, Jesus, to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? Who's the someone? I'm looking at about 700 of them right now. 700 someones. And you'll think of a thousand reasons why to disqualify yourself. I'm too broken. I'm not educated enough. I don't know enough. I've not been around enough. I'm too old. Let, someone, let the next generation do it. I've done my turn. I've had my share. Every single one of you in this room is a someone that's telling someone so they can hear, so they can believe, so they can get saved because the story is still being written because the story is still being told. This story is going to continue until Jesus comes. It didn't start an end 2,000 years ago. It didn't start an end at the resurrection of Jesus. It didn't start an end in the book of Acts. The story is still being written. You are in God's story. You're a part of God's story. God plans you to be in his story. God has a purpose for you in his story. God wants to use you in his story. Now listen, you'll never be the lead. And anytime you think you have the lead, God will pull you out of the way and he'll find somebody else. But as long as you know your part, you have a part to play. Everybody who's a part of this house, this is the church small C, the global church. Everybody who identifies and surrenders to the name of Christ is a part of the church, the large church, capital C. Every local church is the church. As a part of the church, global, large C, and a part of faith church, our local church, you're playing a part. Every time you give here, every time you serve here, every time we, a favorite time we're a part of a campaign, faith loves, faith serves. What you're doing is you are contributing to the story that still is being written.